All right, we are live again on YouTube for another episode of Emancipatory Education Now. We're at episode four of our series for the spring. And just before we uh, get started, um, I know I messaged you all um, yesterday, but I guess I just want to say just briefly, I guess, you know, in a, in a society where so many people uh, choose to act with hatred and violence and uphold systems of oppression towards others, I'm just really, just really proud to be working with you all, uh, where you're choosing to come from a place of love and really advocate for making, you know, your communities and your society a better place. So I'm really looking forward to you all engaging in today's dialogue. And Vishnavi is going to lead us in a dialogue about inequality and access and education. So take it away. Uh, thanks, Brian. So hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you to my panelists for um, joining in for today's conversation. Um, for today's topic, I wanted to discuss something that has been uh, going on for the past few decades, ever since um, college has become more expensive, and that is um, students in low-income communities. Um, a lot of students at San Jose State University do belong in the low-income community, and they're seeking a higher education, um, and they're defying all odds, uh, statistics, uh, whatever it is, uh, to come and get a degree. So um, I just wanted to talk to my panelists about, um, you know, after the pandemic started, a lot of students um, are financially insecure now. So this is a topic that I am passionate about because I think that students really need resources and guidance, no matter what your income status is, no matter what your social class is, everyone deserves to succeed especially those that are disadvantaged in other aspects of life. So I thought this would be something to think about um, for all of us, especially as university students. So um, let's get started with a quick video that all the panelists have watched as well. So I would like to share this video with all our viewers. So I'll go ahead and share my screen.
Okay, so I thought that just kind of set the tone for today's conversation, you know, the statistics and uh, the facts, the hardcore facts about low income students and as well as some solutions and things that universities are trying to do. So to start off the conversation, I would like to um, ask my fellow panelists um, the first question. So which is what were your reactions to these videos? Uh, we did watch a crash course video on social inequality. So were you surprised, unsurprised, or were you hopeless? And were there any statistics that caught your attention? Um, I can go ahead and start us off. So I found both videos to be really informative. So thank you for sharing those, Vishnavi. They were both, um, I think the statistics definitely stood out to me. I wasn't too surprised um, out of all the data because it is something that I've noticed like all throughout school and like just the differences um, and access to resources, low income versus higher income students receive. So it was kind of disappointing to see those statistics and really like th this issue has been going on for decades and like really like um, there's a huge difference in statistics. One that really stood out to me was um, I believe it was 83% of high income students enroll in college after high school versus 63% of low income students. And in the video you just showed, I think it said like 10% or 16% of low income students end up graduating um, a four year college, which is a really like low percentage compared to high income students. And that they mentioned in the crash course that those statistics lead to. Um, the socioeconomic makeup of college campuses to be really similar, and that ends up it ends up trapping low-income students in like the cycles of poverty, while um, college campuses are full of like higher economics. But it was really interesting to kind of see those statistics really like um, see them in numbers rather than just like. Um, oh, you can go, Victor. Um, it's okay. All right. So, um, I think I, I really liked all of the resources that you provided Vaishnavi and, you know, like Amina, I had already know, known some of these things already. You know, I knew that it was harder for low-income students to get into colleges. Um, I think what stood out to me the most was the NPR article that you actually included because in this article, it talks about um, the college admission process and how even though we would all like to think that the college admission process to these Ivy League schools is very neutral. Um, in fact, there's things like legacy preferences, there's things like early decision applications, um, all of which really harm low income students and especially I think early decision applications really struck me because I hadn't really ever thought about it, um, but when you make an early decision application, you are committing to attending the school um, if they accept you. And financial aid packages are often not released with early decision applications, or if they are released, you have no choice. It doesn't matter. You have to go to that school. And so for low-income students, they actually, it seems so simple, but they actually, many of them can't afford to do early decision because they need to be able to know that they can afford the school and they need to be able to pick the financial aid package that they get. Um, and so for schools to not give them an option to compare financial aid packages, it prevents 
low-income students that might otherwise apply to these schools and be more likely to get accepted, it prevents them from doing so. Um, you are more likely to be admitted to an Ivy League if you chose early decision. So even if you're still applying, you're much less likely to be admitted, even though the only reason you're not choosing early decision is because you can't afford to. Hi, thank you. Hey, uh, hi, Anna. How you doing? Uh, thank you for talking about the article. Yeah, I find the article very interesting as well. I believe the one, one, um, one point that really stood out to me from the article was um, how legacy can be used as a as a tool, like affirmative action. You know, it could be used as a way to um, recruit or um, yeah, recruit. Uh, previous um, people who have already had access to education and it's just reinforcing the status quo. And um, along with the crash, uh, the crash, uh, crash course video that uh, Vashnavi uh, shared with us earlier as well, I find it very interesting about the tracks within education, especially the tracks, like the tracks to um, the prison um, that is a plain evident in uh, and education as well. Um, overall, um, I um, none of the facts really stood out to me, but just the blaring obvious um, conclusion that the educational system is um, really really um, built to uphold social inequality. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it diverts students from, or to higher education. It, um, it's very segregated within its policies and it's very, or it's, um, pro practices inside of camp, camp uh, inside of schools as well, or campuses. Um, yeah, overall, I, um, found it very insightful as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Victor. And I liked how you said that um, even if nothing stood out to you, it just was so plainly obvious that um, low-income students are going through many obstacles and barriers, even if we don't know the statistics. Like Amina said, she said it's not um, it's not surprising to see the statistics because we have seen um, many students go through those obstacles of not being able to attain a higher education. And thank you, Anna, for also bringing up the article. I'm glad that you had a chance to read it because um, it is a little concerning that even in an admissions process, which is supposed to be um, not biased at all. Sometimes there is a bias towards um, athletes and athletes we know that they need to be able to have that time to practice and to um, have those extracurriculars, which a lot of low-income students cannot afford. So thank you all for sharing. And um, yeah, for me too, when the first time that I watched this, these videos and read this article, I was also not too surprised, but I was really disappointed. And I thought this is something that a lot of people should know, which is why I um, chose to share them with you. So thank you again for sharing.
Um, and my next question was, what are some examples of initiatives at the classroom, school or university, state or federal level that have been effective at creating a more equitable education for low income students? What are some examples of ineffective initiatives or missed opportunities? So just to kind of um, bring it all together, what are some initiatives that you think have worked um, in your own classroom or at your own school um, or also um, you know, at the state level or what are some programs that you think have not worked or need improvement? Yeah, I can talk about that one first. Um, so one, um, one measure that um, that's closer to um, implementing equity in education would be the reasoned decision from the UCs and um, states colleges to uh, stop um, taking into consideration SAT and ACT scores into their decision process. I feel like that's a pretty, um, pretty uh, progressive step uh, in the right direction of uh, implementing more equity in um, education. Uh, I also believe that um, Another good way of implementing more equ equity in education would be to somehow get rid of the grading system. I believe that um, to determine the worth of a chill of a, of a student based on a grade letter is a uh, very um, not holistic. It's very um, it's very um, incorrect to properly assess a student's worth based on their ability to regurgitate information on a standardized test or on a test per se. I believe that if we were to able to um, somehow substitute the way that we um, evaluate students using grade, le grade letters, I believe if we were to have more a holistic approach, it would be more better uh, way of uh, assessing students' uh, progress and development instead of putting a um, a, a um, gray letter to um, on them and just judging them and um, you know tracking them based on the gray letters. Yeah, Victor, I definitely agree with you. I think that um, the decision to stop taking like SAT scores and ACT scores is definitely a step forward because those test scores, like we discussed last week, aren't like on proper measures of a student's abilities. And I think in the crash course video, they mentioned like the term meritocracy, and it's where it's like a society where hard work is recognized and rewarded, and it's it says that it should be based like. Um, not on students like race, gender, or socioeconomic status, but we end up seeing that grades and test scores are based on that due to factors outside the school. I definitely agree with you because grades and test scores aren't um, a proper um, display of a student's abilities. And kind of just going to the like, opposite of how you mentioned that, I think an ineffective initiative um, that just got placed is um, resuming standardized testing. I think um, not considering those scores is a great support because they're not equal measures, but the, the whole government just announced that they're gonna resume standardized testing for 
evolve. And I think that's kind of a step backwards because especially now in a pandemic and that does affect lower income students more heavily, it is not really a fair measure of students, especially if they are applying to colleges as well. Yeah, I really liked, um, Victor and Anna, what you've been saying about grades and how we need to revise or, you know, get rid of our grading system. I think that, you know, another way to look at it is, you know, what do the grades represent? You know, we may not ever be able to fully get rid of grades, um, but we can think about do the grades represent, should the should grades just represent how well you did on a test? Um or should they represent the effort that you put in? You know, um, something that we've been talking a lot in my teacher education classes is formative assessment. And formative assessment is focused on progress and it's focused on feedback over grades. So you almost give grades because you have to, because you know there's a system and you have to, you at some point you don't have very much control over your participation in that system. But I think that even rethinking our concept of grades and saying, okay, grades are now, they're going to represent progress and they're going to represent effort and they're going to represent improvement. And the goal isn't it's a grade and you can't change it. It's the goal is it's a grade and we're going to work with you and we're going to look at the whole student. Um, you know, I would love there to be a time when we don't have to give grades, but unfortunately that will take require a lot of work if we ever get there. So um, those are some, I think, other ways to kind of think about it in the meantime. Um, and the other, in terms of initiatives that have really helped, um, and I'm speaking from personal experience because I benefited from these, is just federal funding to help financial aid. Um, especially, I think, not even federal, just federal funding, but on the state level in California, at least. Um, there's like several grants that you can get to help you. There's um, the Cal grant, which will help you pay for like um, a community college or a four-year school. There's the California Promise grant, which will help you um, pay for your community college. Um, and then those are on, in addition to the Pell grant that is from the federal government. And I think that, you know, there's definitely disadvantages to some of these programs, um, a lot in terms of like how you apply for them. Um, but there's also the advantages that it gives money to um, students that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford college and it sort of helps it's it's a step towards reducing that inequality by giving these students access to colleges that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to afford yeah thank you everyone and thank you anna for sharing about your personal experience as a student that um, has applied to these programs and you know, benefited you. I think it's really nice to hear about students that are um, aware of these resources and are making use of them. So thank you so much. And um, Amina and Victor, your uh, ideas about the standardized testing, I definitely agree, especially after our conversation last week. I see standardized testing in a whole new light now, um, really thinking about whether it really is an advantage to students uh, versus it being a disadvantage. So uh, thank you, everyone. So the third question I have is, how do you think race plays a factor in schooling in low-income communities? Uh, the videos also provided some examples, if you remember any, and did, you, did anything stand out to you? 
So personally, when I created this question, I was thinking about how um, a lot of low-income students are also colored. So they have that um, kind of double risk where they are low-income and they're also a minority racially. So how do you think this might affect a student either positively or negatively, or is there no effect at all? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, race, race can have a huge impact on a lot of uh, factors in education. I feel like race um, plays a long, plays a huge role in um, teachers and counselors um, set beliefs about students. I believe that some agents in education might come into the institution with deficit-based thinking about certain uh, race, uh, certain uh, races or certain groups of people. And I believe that um, by having that, you kind of also lower, lower your standards. And by lowering your standards, you also, um, you, you, um, let me see how to word this. By lowering your standards, you, the child or the student doesn't get um, to develop to the full potential, you know? Um, I also think that race uh, plays a role in school by, um, but just the fact that um, low up, low income communities are typically populated by students of color and, you know, they, the low, those communities tend to be, have a little access to resources um, with inside the school because of tax, um, because of tax zones um, in the district that um, allocate, uh, you know, resources based on the community in the neighborhood. So, yeah, I feel like that's just touching on on the on the effects of race in education, but um, yeah, I would also like to hear everyone else's opinion as well. Thank you for sharing. I think that's a really like interesting perspective. I didn't think of that much. The first point you made about how um, teachers and admin can have a different view of a student, and the video did mention something that like um, I was pretty interested to learn, and is that most teachers and admin are white and they can have, which has important implications both for the curriculum and how students are evaluated, which I thought was a really nice point. Additionally, like you mentioned, um, black children and other students of color are more likely to be living in lower income neighborhoods, which have worse schools because of how the schools are supported by lower tax dollars and other funding. And this just shows a structural disadvantage for the students because they don't have um, resources or the same amount of resources students in higher income neighborhoods might have. And same with the schools, they may not have access to the best teachers or classrooms, and it can go as little to like um, the supplies versus supplies of higher income. Thank you, Amina. And I really liked the point you brought up about how a large majority of teachers are white. Um, you know, public school teachers and admin. I was actually reading this. Um, it's every few years the um, the U.S. Department of Education does a survey of public schools and 
um, public school teachers and they get you know demographics information. And the most recent one they did, I think it was the 2017 to 2018 one, the most recent one they did found that 79% of public school teachers are white. Um, and then it's even higher for private school teachers. It's like 85%. So there's a really big difference there. And I think it not only like, it, it not only creates a mismatch in terms of, you know, who's teaching and the students that are being taught, but it also creates a lack of representation for those students. Because if you, this means that if you're a low-income student of color, you are, you don't see people that look like you that have been to college. The, you know, the likelihood of you seeing a teacher, of seeing someone in authority that you look up to and then having gone to college and gotten a degree is much, much lower. And so you may not even see college as an option for yourself. And you may not have the resources to apply to college. You may not even know how to apply to college, how to apply for financial aid. Um, and you may just grow up thinking that that's not an option, that that's not something you should do. And so it, you know, part of it is like, just even trying to have a more diverse teacher force, even if you don't do anything else, even having that would be a big difference because kids need to be able to see themselves um, in higher education in order to think that that's a goal that they can achieve. Thank you everyone for sharing. And wow, that really stood out to me that 79% of um, teachers are white. I did not know that. So it makes sense uh, why some students might uh, feel a bit hesitant to maybe approach a teacher, someone that might not understand how they feel as a minority. So um, it's really, it could be like a deeper issue. We could talk about this uh, as a completely different topic, you know, teachers and student dynamic and how that works out. So thank you for sharing your thoughts, everyone. Um, and then my fourth question was, uh, in the crash course video, uh, we did see that higher income students are more likely to spend time with their children, reading books and strengthening their cognitive skills. So these higher income children enter school with more knowledge compared to a child from a lower income household. So how do you think we can support these young children early on to ensure that they're successful throughout their school journey? Um, in the crash course video, this really stood out to me because um, it could start as early as like three or four or five, you know, the school that you're going to is basically going to determine kind of how you are going to approach education and um, your whole dynamic in the future as you are finishing up your schooling. So I thought this would be an interesting question to ask, not only, you know, university students, but even little children that belong in low income households. You know, I really like that you brought that up, Vaishnavi, because I think what that point really shows is that when we're talking about getting low-income students into higher education, um, we need to think holistically because it's not just about what kind of education they're getting in school at that moment. It's about what's happening outside of school, you know? Are they going hungry, you know? Do they have a safe place to live? Do they have a place where they can study? Do they have access to the internet? Do they have access to their school books? You know, um, are they having to take care of their younger siblings? Do they even have time to study? And so I think that sometimes it's very easy to make this conversation only about how can we change our schools, which is obviously very important. That needs to be part of the conversation, but it also needs to be what kind of other programs can we put in place to help our students 
outside of school. Um, like, and we kind of, we saw that with the pandemic because um, a lot of, a lot of schools, for example, provide free lunches to students who are of a low income. And so suddenly with COVID, these kids aren't getting food. And for some of these kids, that was the one meal that they could always rely on every day was that free lunch. And so then all of a sudden schools are having to put in programs to say, how can we get food to these kids? And many schools, you know, set up alternative ways, drive by things like that to support their students. And it just really goes to show that when we talk about helping low-income students, we have to think holistically about their um, lives outside of school as well as their lives inside of school. I definitely um, agree with you, Anna. I think in regards to the pandemic as well, like you see students, they're learning from home now. So if their parents maybe have the opportunity to work from home and they can um, maybe support their students with distance learning, but maybe if a student's um, parents are essential workers or they have to go out every single day, they're not, maybe they're home alone. They're not getting the support they need um, to do distance learning as well as can they, do they even have the supplies? I think we're definitely seeing a huge gap in that, and that definitely affects the way students learn as well. So I think that um, definitely like played a big role into that. And then also, um, one second, um, I think also providing like the school can provide resources, like maybe like a learning center or opening the school up to maybe a few students. Um, who don't have the technology at home or the resources at home to learn so they can connect to Wi-Fi and we can get a computer to learn as well as providing, I know a few schools do this right now, but providing um, drive-by pickups for resources kids can get and even like on a mention like school lunches where they can drive by. All of a sudden they're not getting all the resources and um, technology they used to rely on every single day. Oh, sorry oh. about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Anna, I completely agree with you. I believe that um, it's really important to um, look at the look at the student holistically, and um, you know, and treat the student as though they, um, yeah, just like more holistically. I completely agree with you. I believe that a lot of students that go through housing insecurity or food insecurity, and you know, it's really hard to uh, give your full devotion to um, to education when you're being distracted by not knowing if you have uh, food at home or not knowing if you can afford to live uh, where you live for the next month because you don't know if your uh, parents might. Uh, might um, lose their jobs or, or, you know, something else happens as well. So, you know, making sure that students are taken care of outside of school, uh, I think is very important. How we do that is by advocating for more, more social services in um, the communities, uh, low-income communities and resources in uh, those low-income communities. So then um, we can help even the, um, the uh, social platform that the students all contend on, you know, um, so then there could be more equity in education. I, um, yeah, I completely agree with you. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing, Victor. I really like your idea of, um, you know, giving those uh, social uh, resources for low income communities. As a public health major, that's one of my passions. I wanna be able to um, use all the skills I'm learning um, during this, uh, uh, you know, during my pursuing of this uh, major. So thank you for bringing that up. And I really like how all of you were uh, talking about how the pandemic um, affected students negatively as well, because we do know that there were students um, suf uh, suffering um, before the pandemic, but uh, afterwards, you know, the pandemic really, a lot of uh, parents lost their jobs and a lot of children just aren't responding to online learning as well as they did to in-person. So it's really interesting to see how that um, might play out in the future. Obviously, all of us want to go back in person, especially for um, children that are starting out um, uh, their whole school career. So uh, hopefully, you know, we are able to provide them some more resources in the future if uh, this is the new normal. So um, going from, uh, you know, the early childhood education back to university education. So we all know that FAFSA is a great way for students to get grants and money and uh, loans, all types of student aid. So um, do you think FAFSA is a simple process for low-income families? Why or why not? So this question, um, I personally thought that a lot of um, my peers when we were applying for low income, uh, there were some complaints about FAFSA. Some people were saying that it was really easy while other people were complaining about the tax document upload and like, you know, the demographics and filling out all of that, especially for parents that probably don't speak um, English as their first language. So uh, I just wanted to know your opinions on um, FAFSA. Um, I don't think, like personally, I don't think FAFSA is the simplest process for anyone. Um, it definitely is like very complicated and multiple steps. And like um, the video mentioned, parents from low-income families most likely maybe didn't go to college or, and they may struggle more helping their child fill out a college application or a FAFSA application. Um, I know from personal experience with like my parents went to country or a different state, it's a really complex process it's constantly changing like every year that there's different requirements and it is very like complicated process, especially for parents, like you mentioned, Vishnavi, who may not speak the same language or who may have had a different experience. And I think it is a very like certain type of specialized knowledge and students who have parents who um, went to college here or may, may maybe went through the same process may have a slight advantage because they know what's going on and they may have more resources to get help to how to fill out the process. They're like, I know when I filled it out and my sister filled it out, it was kind of like a guessing game and it was really confusing and we weren't completely sure if we were doing it. Yeah, oh, sorry, Victor, do you wanna go? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I agree with Amina. I do not think FAFSA is the easiest process. It gets easier once you do it more than once. You know, you have to do it every year. Um, but I think in the beginning, I was really lucky. My parents were able to help me out when I was doing all the taxes stuff, but it can be very confusing. Um, and, you, you know, I found myself having to Google, like, what's the correct answer to this question? Should I be putting this or that? Um, I've definitely 
made mistakes on my FAFSA and then had to go back and like correct them after I've submitted it because I realized like, oh, I should not have put that. That was the wrong answer. Um, and so I think that, you know, you know, it, school, you know, when we think about low-income students applying to college, we can think about what programs can we put in schools to help them fill out the FAFSA? You know, can we have workshops where we sit down with them and say, this is literally step-by-step -step how you find the form, how you fill it out, how you go and get the stuff from the IRS, you know, so that they don't feel lost because it can be very overwhelming when you're, someone has just told you, you have to fill this out and you're sitting in front of your computer and you're just thinking, how on earth do I go about doing this? Yeah, that was a great idea. Workshops. Um, yeah. So I my first introduction to higher education was at the community college level. So I um, transferred to the community college, and then first doing that, I also had to fill out a FAFSA form. And um, since it was my first encounter, I kind of found it um, pretty hard to understand, especially uh, coming from um, high, fresh up high school and uh, still not. Um, Pretty sure what to do, what I wanted to do in my life um, at that point. But um, yeah, one thing that I found super helpful was at the community college that I went to. Um, they actually had a some fast um, workshops that uh, you can go and attend and get and um, get help in the, uh, filling out your FAFSA forms. And I found that very um, very successful in helping students um, navigate you know, um, higher education. Uh, so I'm a big advocate for that as well. Um, but I but I know that that also takes resources. And uh, so why don't we just um, also um, try to implement that more, more um, for everyone, for every school, you know, so then they could all get assistance too, I believe, or um, that would be um, a pretty cool idea. Yeah, thank you for sharing everyone. I'm glad that, um, you know, your community colleges or your schools had some resources. Um, I think, like you said, Victor, I hope that soon enough, all schools and all universities um, will be able to provide support for students, especially low income students. And um, personally, in my high school, I also had a great counselor that walked me through the FAFSA form, and that was um, a great help for me. So I was glad that my school was able to help students, um, especially low income students with uh, you know, dual language speaking counselors and workshops in different languages and uh, providing parents with workshops at different hours in the day at 7 p.m. for parents that work throughout um, the day and then maybe like 8 a.m. for parents that work night shifts. So it, they had a lot of options, which I was glad to see. So hopefully um, other schools are able to provide that as well because FAFSA is obviously a very important form um, for many students. It's like a make or break if they will go to a, a university or if they will not. So uh, thank you for sharing again. And my last question for today is um, after reading the article on the factors, 
that count against low-income students in the college admissions process, what were your thoughts and initial reactions? Do you think that students that attend schools with extremely low budgets will always have no hope towards attending good colleges since they don't have impressive extracurriculars or classes? So we did talk about this article a little towards the beginning of the uh, episode, but um, I thought it would be uh, great to kind of discuss this in further detail and see what our opinions are on the college admission process. You know, I think after thinking about this question, um, I don't I don't think there's no hope. I think that, you know, I think a, you know, there's a lot more um, access to like state schools um, than there is to um, Ivy League schools. So I think we have to make a dif differentiate between the two. And I think that you can still get, um, you obviously you can still get a good education at a state school and a lot of low income students go towards that because it's cheaper and there's less hurdles to jump through. I think that we do have to talk about how many of these students are excluded from the Ivy League, the more prestigious schools, because it is problematic when the people that go to these schools, which are considered for the best of the best, when we're not seeing a representative demographic at those schools, because it says something about who's going to, who, who are going to be the leaders, who's going to um, rise up in society. And it says something when these schools are excluding people um, from high of, you know, people from low-income communities of higher, from higher education. But I definitely don't think that there's no hope. Um, I think that, you know, having these kinds of conversations um, and, you know, we've also seen a lot, again, with things like the FAFSA, you know, initiatives to provide money, you know, things like the Cal Grant, um, we've seen steps in that direction. And so clearly people are interested in doing this. I think that we're, we still have a long way to go, but I definitely think that we're having good conversations about this right now. I can go next. Um, well, I, I, I don't think it's hopeless because like um, there's a famous, um, the famous, uh, I, I believe it uh, comes from a famous quote from Tupac Shakur that talks about the the rose that grew from the concrete, you know, and that analogy uh, ties well into um, into the occurrence or the phenomenon of what happens when um, students from uh, underprivileged backgrounds still are able to blossom despite of the concrete, despite of the inequality, you know? So it's possible, it's always, if there's a will, there's a way it's possible, but it's the thing is that until we start addressing the concrete, until Can y'all hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah. So I think we, I think you stopped at the part where uh, until we can fix the concrete. So if you would like to yeah. start from there. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So until we can actually 
Um, talk about the concrete. Talk about the systematic inequalities that are in place in society that reinforce social inequality, regardless of our efforts to try to um, act more progress. Uh, we need to attack the concrete, the systematic um, capitalistic system in place that perpetuates or reinforces inequality. Um, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. So yes, students from low income communities that come from, uh, from low uh, resource uh, schools, yes, they can make it, they can make it and, um, you know, they can make it to a higher education. It is possible, but you know it's also situ it's also set up it's also set up for um not for every student to be able to do that in the first place, too. So we also got to take that into consideration as well. But we need I feel like attacking the concrete, which is a system in place, uh, needs to be addressed, especially as uh we are coming into education with uh emancipatory lens as well. I feel like we need to um, talk about the concrete as well. I think that was perfectly said. I definitely agree with both of you. Um, yeah, it's definitely not hopeless. It is, we do see that there are systems that make it really hard for students, like low-income students to um, get into these like really big schools and achieve these great things. But like Victor said, like when there's a will, there's a way and we definitely see um, many students, you know, achieving that. And I think it is, um, and like, it is up to like the future to like work, like work against these systems. So in the future, more lower income and more students who don't have these opportunities are able to do these great things and get into um, any school they want. There's not that um, bias or like hurdle against Yeah, thank you for sharing everyone. I'm glad that um, all of you have such positive outlooks about um, the future of low-income students because um, a lot of students that are in low-income and poverty might think that they, you know, have no bright future. But again, um, hopefully the resources that we're able to provide to these students are um, enough for them to be able to uh, build themselves up and we are seeing a lot of students at our own university coming from different adverse situations and even through the pandemic um, and succeeding in their classes and participating in clubs so it's really inspiring to see all that and as far as the admissions process um, you know sometimes it might not even be the admissions process uh, fault. Sometimes higher income students uh, are, um, they do have these opportunities that they did, which makes them more qualified than a low income student. And that's, you know, kind of no one's fault, which is why we have to be able to provide the same opportunities to low income students as well. So that doesn't give any divide. And um, especially I do see universities like um, the UC system, they allow personal statements that allow these students to write about their um, experiences and how they overcame these experiences so that they um, are able to not only show, you know, their um, grades and their extracurricular curriculars, but also um, their overall story. So 
uh, yeah, thank you once again, everyone, uh, my panelists and also our viewers for uh, tuning in. This was a great conversation, a lot of, you know, different perspectives. And um, again, thank you for mentioning initiatives and your own opinions and personal experiences. So thank you.